Let's pray again and ask the Lord's blessing on the ministry of the Word this afternoon. Father in heaven, open our minds to understand your Word. We thank you for your law, which we have been considering these many weeks. Help us to understand your law. Help us to live according to it. Help us to handle it correctly and in the right way. Father, I do pray above all that your law would drive us to Christ as it brings to us this realization that we have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. Again, we thank you for the Savior. All of our hope is in Him. Would you bless now the preaching of the Word? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're considering Baptist Catechism 87 this afternoon. And it asks, Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer goes like this, and I would like you to repeat it after me. No mere man... Since the fall, fall, is able in this life, life, perfectly to keep keep the commandments of God, God, but daily break them them, in thought, word, or deed. deed. And I would like to read now from 1 John 1, 5 through 10. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. The reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this afternoon. We spent 23 weeks considering God's moral law. Did you know that? 23 weeks we spent... Uh, learning all about God's moral law. First, we learned that God's moral law was written on the heart of man at the time of creation. Next, we learned that the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral law. After that, we learned that the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, with all our strength and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. So there is the, the sum of the moral law. That's the essence of it. And then we proceeded to consider each of the Ten Commandments And concerning each commandment, we, with the help of our catechism, asked, well, what does this require of us and what does it forbid? So that was the pattern. And so 23 weeks we spent considering God's moral law in that way. And as we progressed through through the Ten Commandments, it, it, it became clear to us that the first four commandments have to do with our relationship to God. And so what are the first four commandments? They are these. It would be good to memorize them, even in this brief form. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So the first four commandments have to do with our relationship to God. And the last six have to do with our relationship to our fellow man. And what are commandments 5 through 10? They are, honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And so, brothers and sisters, young and old, I would encourage you to memorize these commandments. Even in this brief form, it would be good to know what they are, to have them on your mind and heart. 
And where are these Ten Commandments found? Where are they found? Two places. First of all, Exodus 20, and then after that, Deuteronomy 5. It is very important for us to know these Ten Commandments, brothers and sisters. I think it is important also to recognize that there are some things said in these Ten Commandments that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. If you read them in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, uh, the basic commandments are there, but, but in the midst of them there are some things in the Ten Commandments that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. For example, Israel was to rest and worship on which day? Old Covenant Israel. The seventh day. So when I read the law of God from Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, that's what it says, that the people of God were to rest and worship, to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy on the seventh day. And you think, well, that's not true for us. Right, something has changed. And if you don't know what it is that changed, it, we'll need to talk about that. We are to honor the Sabbath day on the first day of the week because Christ is risen. The abiding moral law is that one day in seven is to be set apart as holy unto the Lord, but the day itself is ceremonial and symbolic. The Sabbath keeping remains for the people of God, but, but the day has changed because Christ is risen. Two, what is said after the second commandment regarding visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, has also changed. Have you ever wondered what that means? When we're reading the Ten Commandments, after the second commandment, there is this little remark about how God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him. What, what is that about? Does that still apply? And I would want to say to you, no, it does not still apply to us at least not in the same way. In Old Covenant Israel, physical descent meant a lot. To descend from Abraham physically meant that you were a part of the Old Covenant. Men and women were born into the Old Covenant, therefore, and this covenant had sanctions attached to it. If the people obeyed God, they would be blessed in the land. If they disobeyed God, they would be cursed and vomited out of the land. And because of this, the fathers would sin, and who would pay the price? Often, yes, the fathers might, but... It might also be the children who paid the price for the sin of, of, of their fathers. But it is not so under the new covenant. Yes, the principle still applies to us, maybe nationally, right? We see this all the time. Decisions that our parents make in their generation has an effect upon our generation. Yes, that is still true. But I'm talking here about the new covenant and partakers of the new covenant. This is not so under the new covenant. No one is born into the new covenant. To partake of the new covenant, one must be born again and have faith in the Messiah. So this generational principle that is communicated after the second commandment has melted away, therefore. And Jeremiah the prophet spoke of this change ahead of time when he spoke of the newness of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31.29 we read, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So Jeremiah the prophet, ministering under the Old Covenant, said this is going to be one of the new things about the New Covenant. This, this generational principle here is, is not going to apply. And so if anyone tells you that there are generational curses in the New Covenant, you should warn them that they have believed false teaching and are demeaning the power of Christ and the salvation that He has earned for us by His death and resurrection. Christ has set us free, brothers and sisters,
this generational curse principle uh, does not apply under the new covenant. In fact, it did not even really apply in that way under the old covenant. It was not a generational curse, but rather a national consequence for uh, sin committed by previous generations. So whenever we read the Ten Commandments, we should remember that they are indeed a summary of God's moral law. God's moral law never changes. But there are these two things mentioned which were unique to Old Covenant Israel. The Seventh-day Sabbath, which corresponded to the covenant of works, and the principle of uh, national guilt. These things have changed. God's law is good. Amen? Amen? God's law is good. But remember what Paul wrote to Timothy. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That is a very big if. If one uses it lawfully. Whenever we handle God's law, we must remember that it is possible to misuse it. The law is good, but it is so easy to misuse. And when it is misused, that which is good in and of itself becomes bad for us. And how is God's law misused? It is misused in many ways, but it is misused most commonly when men and women think that they can stand before God as righteous by keeping it. That is the most common error. Sometimes men will take up the law of God, God's moral law, and say, if I only do this, then God will accept me. If I only do this, then God will see me as righteous. This is such a common error. All of the religions of the world, with the exception of Orthodox Christianity, make this error. They believe that they will stand right before God on the last day because of their good works and obedience. Many who are non-religious make the same mistake too. They, they reason in this way, if God exists, then He will accept me because I am, what? A good person. But this is a grave mistake. Those who think this way have not understood what God requires of them. They think they are righteous, but in reality they are not. And so common is this error that Paul the Apostle calls it the stumbling stone. He refers to this error, the thought that we can obtain righteousness before God by the keeping of the law. He refers to this error as the stumbling stone. In Romans 9.30 he says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is so clear. It's almost as if Paul is saying, Isn't it ironic that salvation has come to the Gentiles, even though they weren't even thinking about righteousness? Whereas the Jews, who seem to have been so concerned about being right before God, they have missed it. Why did they miss it? They missed it because they didn't pursue righteousness before God by faith. Instead, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They tripped over this. They thought they could keep God's law and thus be made right before God. So that is the stumbling stone. It is the false notion that men and women may stand before God by keeping the law. The Scriptures say otherwise... The Scriptures teach us from Genesis 3 onward that the only way to be right before God is by the grace of God through faith in the Savior that God has provided for us. As we studied the Ten Commandments, I tried to remind you of this over and over again. To be quite honest, I was always a bit fearful that we did not get the wrong idea, that that we did not slide into the misuse of God's law. God's law is good, it is beautiful, it it is wonderful for us to live by, but 
But let us not forget we have violated this law and we need a Savior. God's law is good, but we must be very careful not to misuse it. God's law is good because it is used by the Lord to restrain evil in the world, even to this present day. God's law is good because it functions as a light to the feet of the faithful as they sojourn in this world. It shows us the way that we should go. It makes us wise and is used by the Lord to sanctify us further in Christ Jesus. And God's law is good because the Spirit of God uses it to convict us of sin and to cause us to flee to Jesus for refuge from the wrath of God which our sins deserve. God used the law to drive us to Christ initially, and God uses His law to drive us to Christ continuously too. 1 John 1.1 warns us of the stumbling stone, doesn't it? I've already read the passage. I'll read a portion of it again. In 1 John 1.8 we read, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, If this is our attitude that we are right before God because of our own works... John looks at that, he says, you're, you're, you're tricking yourselves. The truth is not in you. And John does also exhort us to run to Jesus for refuge with these words, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so don't fool yourself into thinking that you have not sinned, but realizing that you have sinned, now run to Jesus. Confess your sin. And God is faithful and just to forgive, to, to forgive us our sins in Christ Jesus. He's faithful to do it because He has promised to, and God cannot be unfaithful to His promises. And He's also just because those sins that He forgives, those sins of ours that He forgives, they've been paid for. They have not just been ignored by God. That would make God unjust. But they have been paid for by the Redeemer of God's elect. What a wonderful reminder this is, brothers and sisters. God's law is good, but we must use it correctly. Now, notice that our catechism also guards us from trusting in our own righteousness. Immediately after a long consideration of God's moral law, which we have just walked through very carefully together, our catechism asks this marvelous question, is any man able to perfectly keep the commandments of God? The answer is very helpful. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but daily break them in thought, word, or deed. And I want you to notice just a few brief things about this answer. Question 87 of our Catechism. One, notice the word mere. No mere man is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God. Why the word mere? Does anyone want to answer? Why the word mere? As a man. No mere man is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God. This is to leave room for the obvious exception of Jesus Christ. He was a man. He did perfectly keep the commandments of God. But he was no mere man, was he? Two, notice the phrase, since the fall. Why why this phrase? It is a matter of precision, I think. Because Adam, before the fall, was able to perfectly keep the commandments of God. He was made good and upright. But he was also able to sin. And this he did. Now, the children of Adam are born in sin and with corrupt natures. We sin because we are in Adam. So no mere man since the fall is able to perfectly keep the commandments of God. Three, notice that our catechism does not say that we are not able to keep the commandments of God at all. That is not true. Those who are in Christ do in fact have the ability to obey God from the heart for they have been renewed. They have been set free from bondage of sin. Corruptions remain though. 
And so our catechism is correct to say that no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, even having been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Through faith in Christ, uh, for those who have faith in Christ still are not able to perfectly keep the commandments of God. For, for notice the phrase, in this life, and with these three little words we are reminded of the life to come. And the fact that in the life to come we will no longer be able to sin if we are in Christ Jesus. And to that I say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Don't you long for that day when we are no longer able to sin, but we are completely renewed and established in glory? Lord Jesus, come quickly. Fifthly and lastly, notice the phrase, but daily break them in thought, word, or deed. If we understand what God's law requires of us and what it forbids, then we will confess that not a day passes wherein we do not violate God's holy law in some way. It may be that we violate it in deed, in what we do. It may be that we violate it in word, in what we say. Or it may be that we violate it in, in the inner man, in our thought life. And certainly all will confess that we daily fail to love God as He deserves, and also our neighbor as ourselves. We come short of this daily. And so I ask you, aren't you grateful for Jesus Christ, the Savior? Isn't God's grace truly marvelous that He would provide a Savior for us, for us at all? Is marvelous to consider. And yes, our appreciation for the love of God in Christ Jesus will grow as we consider the Gospel, which we are about to do. But the Gospel can only truly be understood and appreciated when we see it against the dark backdrop of God's law and our violation of it in thought and word and deed. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your law. We confess that it is good. Help us to use it correctly, lawfully. Help us to use it as it was intended to be used. Help us to see that we have sinned against you, O Lord, and help us flee to Jesus for refuge. But in him we do pray that you would make us walk worthy, Sanctify us, Lord. Make us holy before you. In thought, word, and deed, renew us further, we pray, for our good and the glory of your name and all of God's people's sake. Amen. Amen.